0: Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm Nikki, I'm your host, and it's my pleasure and honour to introduce you to the robotics and AI community in Australia. In the coming weeks, I will be acknowledging the Premier. Principal and Lead Partners of the Women in AI 2023 Awards, which will be held on Friday, 16 June at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. These valued Women in AI Award Partners have been invited to nominate an up and coming inspirational woman within their organisation, a rising star to tell their story. Accenture, a lead partner, have nominated Rosanna B. Yomki. Rosanna is a senior manager in Accenture's Applied Intelligence Practice, where she focuses on helping organizations in their data and AI-led innovation journey. Welcome and thank you so very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you and thank you for having me with you today.
0: Uh, I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Let's start with what does innovation mean to you and what are some of the challenges that organizations and governments are facing in the innovation journey?
1: Yeah, so this is a very good question and I think a very relevant question considering the times they were living. So. There are hundreds of uh, definitions of what innovation is, and there are also definitions uh, of what innovation is not. And many of these definitions actually revolve around the concept of developing new products and new services that deliver value to end users and consumers. Now, I do agree with these definitions, but actually, to me, innovation means something more. We're seeing innovation happening everywhere around us, and this is the result of seeing innovation not just being driven by the private sector. but also by the public sector and governments wanting to be seen as pioneers and thought leaders in this space. And so what this means for us is that actually innovation is touching pretty much every single aspect of our lives. So to me, um, a better, in a way, definition of innovation is the execution of novel ideas that, yes, are useful, but ultimately are kind of making our life easier and are actually improving our standards of living. Um, Now, going back to the second part of your question around the challenges, so there are many, many challenges, you know, when you are working with an organization that has the ambition to be innovative, but to me, there are three key success factors, which are also challenges at the same time, uh, which are readiness, uh, mindset and leadership, and agility. So readiness is really about being real, about what innovation can deliver for the organization. We might have an organization which is very ambitious in their innovation journey, but actually is not quite there yet in terms of having the right people, the right technology, the right mindset, and the right culture. So understanding the context and the boundaries within which we are operating is actually a key success factor because we need to be real about what innovation can deliver in the short and medium term for the organization and for the people working within that organization. And then we need to be real about how we scale up. And and so sometimes you you need to have that tough conversation and constructive conversation around you want to be here in the next two years but actually considering where you're at now the things that we can sustainably kind of achieve are x y and z and that conversation needs to happen up front um, so the readiness assessment usually happens up front and informs also the development of innovation strategy for uh, organizations. Um, now the second challenge is mindset and leadership and is of course closely related to the point of readiness. So. The organizations that actually have been successful in being innovative usually display common traits from corporate culture, business culture perspective they typically empower employees to be part of that journey. So every single employee is uh, an agent of change. And usually you have methodologies and tools that help people really shape their critical thinking and also qualify their own ideas before they submit ideas to leadership or to kind of, you know, boards that are kind of designed, kind of innovation boards to review these ideas and then select the best ones. And I think that this is great because innovation is a very dynamic world. And so an idea which is in innovative today might no longer be innovative tomorrow. And so you really need to create a pipeline of kind of, you know, creativity uh, in order to kind of keep going. Um, Another aspect that I see kind of quite common in uh, organizations that are successful in uh, in, uh, their innovation programs is actually making sure that employees are empowered to reskill and upskill. And this is very exciting for me. And I think it's really, really important because if we see the pace of change that is happening all around us. Unfortunately, everyone, irrespective of their kind of you know professional background, age, the country you're living in, industry in which you're working, you will actually are likely to have multiple career paths in your lifespan. If I think about my parents, I'm originally Italian, they had the same job for like 45 years. And unfortunately we won't have the same privilege. So what this means is that we have the exciting opportunity to reskill, upskill and learn kind of new things and rethink our career, but it can also be very overwhelming. So providing a safe environment to actually change career path and evolve your career path within the same organization. So giving some stability, I think it's a great thing to do. And it was really kind of unlocking, you know, innovative thinking as well. And then the third one is around agility. Now, if we think about, for example, generative AI, we weren't kind of talking about generative AI, you know, to the same extent we're talking about it today. And so if you think about an innovation strategy where you have innovation programs that are kind of set for the next, let's say three to five years, and then you have generative AI all of a sudden becoming mainstream, unless you are an organization that could already see the trend coming up and becoming mainstream in the short term, you actually need to have the agility to kind of reshuffle in a way your priorities and also redirect investment in research and development, for example, and experimentation. And in this current business environment where we're just coming out of COVID in the post-pandemic kind of period, and then we have a global recession, unfortunately, at our doorsteps, having that mindset and that agility is not easy. And on top of this, I think we also need to have brave leadership because the return on investment on innovation projects, unfortunately, does not always align with the timeline that a business has to be profitable and to be disruptive and to be competitive right so we need to acknowledge that we need to create a safe environment where people and experiments can fail and where we are actually kind of trusting the process and we're not giving up as soon as an innovation kind of experimentation is not actually delivering you know the expected outcome and results so acknowledging that the return on investment has a slightly different timeline and having future thinkers people that can see through the noise you know of the now is absolutely important to be successful as well
0: i'm picking up on your remark about your parents having a career that spanned 45 years and you know generally went to university you stayed at probably at one company i mean i know i've got a friend that's in his 70s and stayed at one company his whole life which today i just look at it in absolute amazement do you think there's a sense of um, stress and anxiety in workers today just in terms, you know, I was just looking at uh, just following some AI things like we're going to be replaced and, you know, you better better know what you're doing and you're better adopted added to that um, work burnout. I mean, I'm not painting a, a really good picture of what we're all experiencing at the moment, but that is actually a little bit relevant. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it is definitely not in our DNA to experience, you know, so much change in such a short period of time. And um, one of the kind of philosophers uh, that I really, really kind of like and thinkers in this space is Yuval Harari. And he made very clear that, you know, changing these career paths so often and living in a world of uncertainty is actually putting a lot of stress on us and it's not inherently something that we're good at uh, managing as humans this being said i think it's in a way unavoidable and so that's why i think you know that organizations need to be more agile they need to be able to see talent the potential of people to learn and reskill and upskill rather than just looking at people that have been working in the same space for x number of years and the therefore can kind of, you know, deliver in their current role because their current role might no longer be existing in one or two years time, right? So I think we need to change, uh, you know, the way we look at talent, the way we actually think about career in the context of the same organization and, and really kind of helping people, empowering people to embrace change rather than being kind of afraid of change. And it's not an easy process, but I think that if you're all open, you know, to learn then, uh, and to change, then it would be much easier for everyone.
0: I agree. And I think even companies such as SEEK, um, when you apply for a job there, they actually ask you a whole lot of different questions, not just for the role that you're applying, because they can cross match you to something that you don't even, you wouldn't even have thought that you were, um, you know, you could have done something like that, but they can recognize your skills and your attributes that you bring into the position yeah and that comes also i think to with the um, the point of mentoring
1: right it is really important to make sure that people have a sounding board and people that can in a way from distance look at your journey your potential your skills and give you the confidence to be out there and in in the job market or in the same organization where you have been kind of working uh in for a, for a x number of years and and kind of you know be comfortable in in trying something new so i think that mentoring goes hand in hand with kind of you know these kind of anxiety around change, because I think it's helping a lot of people navigating, you know, these uncertainties.
0: So your current role is responsible AI lead at ANZ. Can you tell us a little bit what your job involves? Yeah, so I'll, I'll
1: start with like, just um, bringing a little bit of clarity <laughs> around what responsible AI is. And the first thing that I actually would like to call out is that responsible artificial intelligence is a concept and an area that goes hand in hand with the concept of responsible innovation. And this is because a lot of the innovation that is happening around us is fueled, you know, uh, is driven, enabled, or informed by artificial intelligence. And so we can't have responsible innovation, i.e. innovation that is delivering, you you know uh benefits to everyone and is making our life easier as I was kind of you know um saying before if the building blocks of that Innovation process including you know data and artificial intelligence are not responsible now we don't have a unified um kind of position on what responsible artificial intelligence is and from a policy making perspective this is part of the challenge uh because we often don't speak the same language but we kind of often speak a similar language um and, and in my view, and this is also reflected, you know, uh, in the work that I do with our, our clients, Responsible AI is about embedding ethical and environmental considerations throughout the artificial intelligence life cycle from defining the AI strategy to uh, training a model and then kind of, you know, monitoring the outcome of AI models, because we are actually uh, dealing with um, a sort of uh, living model, right? So the outcome and the decisions that are produced today by that model are likely to change and evolve and hopefully become more accurate um, and basically better as the model learns from the real life and the data that is fed and the feedback that is provided. So I think the debate around responsible innovation is becoming more uh, front and center in uh, Australia, and it was about time, to be honest, because we are lagging a little bit behind um, compared to the European Union and European countries and the U.S., and um, I think now we are acknowledging that artificial intelligence is not just a mean to an end. And in business context, usually this kind of end, the ultimate goal is to be more profitable and or to kind of achieve cost optimization, for example. But we're actually dealing with a technology that might be applied in the private sector, let's take generative AI, but actually has the potential to be extremely pervasive and to disrupt entire industries and to become very quickly part of our day-to-day lives. And so uh, just to give you a couple of examples of how pervasive AI is, um, we're seeing AI, for example, being experimented in the legal system where lawyers and even judges are actually actually using AI models to assist with the analysis of legal documentation, producing legal reports, but also assisting with the decision-making process in the context of trials. And so on one hand, we might be very excited about this development because this means Means that we are actually shortening you know, the, the duration of trials, which is something which is important, I guess, to people involved. Uh, but at the same time, we need to make sure that the models that we're using are fit for purpose. They're being designed and trained on data, which is not unfairly biased and is not actually exacerbating the unfair practices that we're seeing in society. And on top of this, we also need to make sure that the human in the loop, in this case, you know, lawyers and judges are equipped with the right understanding of this technology to be able to challenge the output if they're not comfortable with it. Because we are told this kind of story that AI is way smarter than us. Uh, is way more productive in us. And, And so the tendency that I see now is that we're kind of taking a step back and we're kind of going, I trust the system, I trust AI blindly, which is part of the problem because we need to be able to actually hold AI accountable in a way. And so we need to actually understand how these systems work and being equipped with the right methodologies and kind of processes and also technology to be able to challenge, you know, the outcome of the system and making sure that we are comfortable with it. Another example that we are seeing is in education. And for example, uh, in the UK, we've seen universities um, experimenting with using models to uh, score exams. And there has been a lot of pushback from students, as you can imagine. And in the Netherlands, which is a very entrepreneurial, very innovative country, actually, fairly recently, we've seen two scandals in the public sector, where in one case, an AI algorithm was being used to assess the risk of committing welfare fraud. And it was using basically indicators such as being a parent, not being um, fluent in Dutch, and not being employed as kind of high risk indicators. And you can clearly see how, you know, these characteristics are more likely to kind of be displayed by a specific kind of community or communities within, you know, um, within the country rather than being applied to everyone. And the other scandal that was actually a nationwide scandal, and there was a lot of uh, kind of coverage by the media was, um, related to 20,000 families that were wrongly accused by an AI model of actually committing child um, care benefit fraud. So you can imagine the level of distress and anxiety of these 20,000 families that have been wrongly accused by AI and, um, we need to be very wary, you know, of uh, um, what AI means in the context of decision-making, especially in uh, government and kind of in the public sector. And last but not least, which I think is relevant also to the point that we were discussing before around how the um, job market and kind of, you know, the work environment is changing, is the use of AI to monitor productivity, to screen CVs. And we've seen cases where, for example, AI models were biased and they were discriminating against women. Um, And so, although I'm very excited about AI, I'm a big fan of AI, I think we cannot make the most out of this technology unless we recognize that things can go wrong, and we actually prevent things from going wrong. And so Responsible AI is really about working with organizations to answer questions such as, how do we risk assess AI? Because the ethics of AI is very contextual to the application. So you may have some internal applications of AI, for example, within you know the operations of uh, an organization, which don't really touch on people. And in that case, the ethics is kind of less I wouldn't say it's less important, but is is less. There is less risk of kind of you know being unethical than having an application of AI that is customer facing, is using customer data or your employee data, and is ultimately um, defining you know the risk score, for example, to apply um, for a mortgage. So having clear in mind that we also need to be smart because we don't have, we don't want to, we don't, we shouldn't jeopardize innovation is really important. So we need to be able to risk assess the use cases and the experiments that we're doing with AI. So part of responsible AI is actually being very pragmatic and developing that risk assessment methodology so that we can have more governance and more control and more discipline for those applications that are riskier, but less control and more agility for those applications that are kind of, you know, uh, less risky from an ethical standpoint. Then there is a question around accountability because the AI value chain is incredibly complex, right? So understanding, Uh, who is accountable if things go wrong is very challenging. We usually have also third parties that are involved in that value chain and they have their proprietary IP and models. So they're not kind of willing to share these, of course. And so it's really, really challenging to kind of create um, a sort of AI value chain, which is fully transparent, where we fully understand how the model has been designed, how it works, what type of data is using, what is the logic that it's being followed. And therefore we're able also to, kind of identify who's accountable if things go wrong, because we have clarity of that sort of supply chain. And so we can clearly pinpoint where kind of mistakes have happened. And then the last point is around kind of, you know, bias and being fair. Um, These systems produce um, effects at scale, for example, in the case of the 20,000 families being impacted, right? So we might have the case of a human committing the same type of mistake, but probably it wouldn't have affected 20,000 people. So We need to make sure that the data and the outcome of AI is not unfairly biased and is not kind of representing the inherent kind of uh, discrimination and unfortunately inequalities that we have in our society. And this is a mix of governance, um, of regulation, but also of technology, because we are kind of churning so much data at the moment that a human eye cannot see through the data and identify whether there is something wrong and whether the data is accurate. So in a way, we also need technology to audit and control technology, which is an interesting concept. So all these kind of questions and kind of topics, you know, fall under the umbrella of responsible AI. And I just wanted to touch on one last thing, which is um, often overlooked, uh, which is around the sustainability of AI, because I always say we focus on the socioeconomic impact of AI, and it's absolutely critical, but we don't have socioeconomic systems if we don't have the environment, right? And so um, there is a cost associated with AI from an environmental perspective. And uh, it is estimated that the um, ICT sector is actually producing between 1.8 and 3.7% of the global emissions. And that's okay, if we make sure that the benefits that we're actually gaining from AI for our society, for our economic system, but also for the environment, because there are many applications now around AI for climate. So AI, which is kind of, you know, designed to actually reduce the carbon footprint that we're having on our environment is actually kind of offsetting the cost that we're paying. And this applies not just to AI, but also to other uh, emerging technologies such as blockchain. And this leads me to generative AI. Just to give you an interesting kind of fact or example when a chat gbt3 was being trained it produced 500 uh, metric tons of carbon dioxide and this was just to train the model and just to put it into perspective i us as individuals like one person produces five tons of carbon dioxide annually so yes, we are all excited, we want to push out innovation, but let's make sure that we also understand what's the environmental cost and what are actually the use cases from an environmental and sustainability perspective where we can use AI so that we can actually offset you know, and find the right balance. So I think this is kind of you know, um, an area of responsible AI which is emerging, but it's not mainstream yet in the dialogue around responsible AI. And I would like to see more people um, actually bringing up this point.
0: You uh, work with startups, and just because I'm South African, I'm going down the South African route. But you've worked in many other countries. Tell us a little bit what you did in South Africa. Oh,
1: it was like one of the best times of my life. <laughs> I'm not, you are South African. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I went to South Africa in 2016. And this was part of a leadership development program that basically was uh, providing the opportunity to consultants to spend a couple of months with startups um, in emerging markets. And I happened to be lucky enough to be kind of, you know, placed in South Africa and specifically in Cape Town, which is a beautiful city. And at that time, I was working with a very successful startup that is now operating in the UK and in the US as well, and is also kind of collaborating with Accenture um, that basically developed a digital behavioral change platform. So basically through e-learning, but also the experience of learning, they were equipping people in the workplace, mainly this was kind of, you know, the target audience with technical skills, with soft skills, but also with behavioral change around boosting productivity, Um, increasing employee engagement and also kind of, you know, digital mindset. And it was really interesting because when I joined as part of the team, you know, I had a risk and compliance background. This is like the first part of my career, the first kind of leap. Um, And so I kind of came in not knowing, you know, what to do in a way, but I trusted the process. And, you know, the ultimate goal of this program was to establish connections and network with startups, but also to equip kind of consultants with uh, a sort of confidence that through your consulting skills, you can actually quickly pick up, you know, new areas. And so it was so interesting. I learned a lot from the founders. We're still in contact. And we worked on anything from, you um, Brand development, competitive analysis, uh, but also organizational change because the company was at that time uh, 20 people strong kind of organization and they were kind of growing pretty fast and they wanted to stay true to their culture, which is, you know, quite challenging when you're growing so much and you want your people to kind of have a consistent um. Uh, view of what the culture of the organization is, but also have the same value of you know the founders and the people who have been actually developing and creating that um, and building the, the company from the ground up. And uh, it was eye-opening for me as well, because this is the first time where I've actually seen an organization making a tangible impact um, in the community, in the society, uh, because education is a big challenge and access to education is a big challenge in South Africa, and you Probably you know no way better than myself. They actually made uh, some of the modules of this platform available for free to disadvantaged people, and they even invited people to come to their offices because even access to kind of good quality internet, for example, is a challenge for some families. And that was like you know eye opening because we often talk about corporate responsibility, social responsibility, and giving back, but that was you know so tangible. It was happening all around me, and it was really empowering. And I must say, um, I'm very excited about this company because they were pioneers in terms of really bringing together productivity, but also um, wellness at work. So back in 2016, in Cape Town, they had daily mindfulness sessions all together, which was a concept completely new to me at the time. I was working in London and mindfulness in the workplace wasn't something that we were talking about or even thinking about. And um, people could actually come and go as they wished. And it was incredible the level of trust and empowerment that people had. So there was so much flexibility. And I've always been working for big corporates, which has, you know, a lot of benefits. But in big corporates, you have structure, you have processes, you have admin, you have bureaucracy. And seeing that kind of agility and lack of, in a way, control and discipline and actually working it was really empowering. So I left a part of my heart in South Africa. Uh, I would like to go back, I didn't have a chance yet. um, But it was great. And I think it's one of the best experiences of my life, not just from a professional perspective. Because I think when you put yourself outside your comfort zone, um, you discover a little bit more about yourself and what you're made of in a way. So I actually found a little entrepreneur in me. So at that point, I joined, you know, and as kind of someone being completely new to kind of, you know, uh, working with startups, et cetera. And I was quite afraid, you know, I had a risk and compliance background. And I came back and I realized that I could actually change my career. I had that in me. I had a lot that I could give beyond the technical skill set that I had developed, you know, in in the previous years. And that really gave me the push to then change my career and join the robotics and artificial intelligence team. So completely pivoting. And having, you know, the confidence to have these conversations, putting myself out there and say, hey, I'll prove myself, I'll study, I'll do research, you know, I acknowledge that I'm kind of behind compared to people that have been working in this space for longer than me, but I can actually catch up. And I'm also a little bit competitive. So, you know... it was, it was good. It was really, really good what I took out of it. And uh, my kind of suggestion to anyone listening to our conversation today is if you have an opportunity to try something new, then just go for it. Because even if you're afraid and you are kind of, you know, concerned that you might fail, even if you fail, whatever failure means to you, you're learning something about yourself and you're just kind of, you know, having different experiences in your life and they will all enrich you.
0: You know, the word failure, I was talking to my son who's, um, is- he started his own business, he's 32 years old, and he had a steep learning curve just on something that he was doing. And I, he was talking about failure. I said to him, you're using the wrong language. This is a learning opportunity. Anything that you've learned from. Uh, failure to me is something that you've gone through. It has a negative impact and you, you couldn't take anything positive out of it. And I, I always look at something that you, um, whether it's his job or any job or anything that you do, uh, whether you haven't planned to be at a meeting on time or you know you've you've just you just think oh that was a bit of a stuff up really sit down and analyze what could i be doing better here whether it's leaving 30 minutes earlier because you just don't know with traffic or whatever the case may be but it puts a completely different spin on it and your brain processes it differently
1: yeah no, absolutely you know they always say there are many many failures before you get to the yep. success phase or kind of point of your life whatever that is so yeah I think embracing failure is is really important
0: yeah I like uh you're the company 2016 they sound as though they were practicing for COVID lots of trust you yeah. can work from home <laughs> you can come and go as you like <laughs> you uh, are passionate about accelerating women's careers in STEM tell us a little bit uh why are you so passionate about this
1: yeah so Uh, actually, one of the takeaways from my experience in Cape Town was also that no matter what you do, you can always give back to the community in different ways. And so I was quite determined to, um, you know, pick a coast that was kind of close to my heart and then give back some of my time. And I spent quite a bit of time thinking about where can I actually make an impact, uh, you know, even if it's at a small scale. And um, I found that DNI, so diversity and inclusiveness in STEM is actually very close to me. One, because I'm one of the DNI kind of representatives. I represent, you know, in a way, you know, one of the pillars of DNI. Uh, And also because I recognize that I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't have the upbringing that I had, if I didn't have the opportunities that were given to me, if I didn't have very good mentors and also bosses that opened doors for me. And so, yes, I made it, you know, in a way, uh, because I was determined and driven, but also because I had a network around me really supporting me. And so I recognize that the same opportunity and the same privilege. is not actually readily available to everyone and uh, especially in developing countries. So when I came across this initiative, which is called Girls in AI, I was like, yeah, I'll jump in, I want to help. So Girls in AI is basically designed to demystify AI uh, for young girls in uh, developing countries, although they have chapters everywhere around the world. And um, I was asked to be on the judging panel of a hackathon day for girls living in Pakistan. So very kind of, you know, specific. Um, specific environment very different from you know what we know living in western countries and uh, it was eye-opening so basically the the whole day consists of uh, grouping these kind of you know students in uh, uh, different kind of teams they have a problem that they need to solve and the problem is associated with sustainable development goals so a very relevant problem and they have to come up with an innovative idea and explain how they would use AI to actually kind of bring that idea to life and execute on that idea and then there is a judging panel uh, that basically listens to these teams pitching and then kind of scores different teams and the winning team then it's kind of you know part of a broader competition within the uh, girls in AI uh, initiative and ultimately you know the winning idea will be uh, then taken to the next step in terms of development which is great and usually you are kind of um, speaking to girls who are very young like 10 to 16 years old. And if I think about what were the most pressing issues in my mind at their age, you know, I wasn't really thinking about sustainable development goals. Uh, I wasn't really thinking about, you know, environmental sustainability, which is a topic that came up pretty consistently, you know, in the solutions that they submitted, but also my own safety. And this is, you know, something that we have to acknowledge that access to education to girls is very challenging in some countries. And on top of that, you also have, you know, issues in terms of the dealing with challenges in your everyday life like your safety so I'm very passionate about this program. I uh, was the judge for two consecutive editions. Um, I haven't been doing it this year um, because I just had a baby, so I am still on maternity leave. Actually, so I just redirected my energies, you know, um, towards something else. But I'm really looking forward to kind of be involved if there is an opportunity to do so in uh, the upcoming editions. And uh, again, you know, my my suggestion is to consider whether your skill set, your experience, is useful to someone. Someone else, uh, Because no matter your seniority, your experience, uh, you know, your professional background, I think you can always give back.
0: Congratulations first on, on the birth of your baby. So ah. um, and I'm sure these these young ladies are missing you. You know, you're right. I think we underestimate um, our influence in the world and we think we have to be. Yeah, I don't know. I, we think we have to be running like Fortune 500 company before we can actually share our insights. That's not true at all. You know, someone, if you're prepared to tell your story and maybe just share some experiences, even if it resonates with only one or two women, men, anyone in the audience, um, I think it's been a positive impact.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So,
0: you also have an interest in helping women navigate the opportunities and challenges associated with climate change, which we've touched on, and collaborating with broader ecosystems such as accelerators, startups, and non for profits on climate tech and tech for good projects. I was reading that um, climate change particularly impacts women negatively, um, and it's also related to anxiety and depression. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, so another very good question and another topic that I think is not covered enough. So um, I'm very happy to have the opportunity to kind of, you know, quickly touch on on, uh, the kind of relationship between climate change and the gender gap. So just to set the scene a little bit. We know that climate change is impacting all of us, irrespective of where we live, but it is also true that the cost, the societal cost of climate change, is not evenly distributed across the world. For example, it is estimated that between um, 1850 and 2011, Uh, the developing world, so developing countries have contributed to 21% of global emissions, but they've actually paid nearly 80% of the the socioeconomic costs of uh, climate change. And we also know that women in this context living in developing or kind of poor countries are more likely to be disadvantaged than men. Are more likely to live in rural areas and are more likely to be employed in economic sectors that are highly impacted by um, climate change. I was doing some research a while ago and I didn't know, for example, that women represent 50% globally, 50% of the workforce in agriculture. And if you take China, they represent 70%. So if you think about extreme climate events, it is clear that if you have an extreme climate event in China, 70% of women are likely to be impacted and not having a job and not having, you know, a house and then kind of, you know, not having also a way of uh, coming out of that kind of, you know, situation of emergency and distress. The other thing that we need to consider, and this is also related to uh, the challenge that we have around diversity and inclusiveness in STEM, is that a lot of the solutioning around climate change is now involving innovation and innovation is partly powered and enabled by AI. And so if we don't have a good representation of women, in the stem kind of arena then it is very difficult to design solutions that account also for the needs of every single type of community and every single type of person that we have in our society and and so it is kind of you know very interesting to see how these topics actually come together because we're dealing with very complex pro- um, problems and the other side to it is leadership so women don't have a seat at the table when decisions are made around what to do when there is an extreme climate event and how to actually mitigate the impact of climate change at a bigger scale. But they're most likely to be impacted by climate change. And so we need to actually change you know these dynamic and we need to make sure that we have equal representation of every single community. I'm not just advocating for women um, in order to have kind of, you know, solutions that are truly beneficial to everyone. And are not just kind of looking at the interests of kind of, you know, a specific part of, uh, of the population. And then to your point, there is a lot of distress, a lot of anxiety. And unfortunately, there are also statistics that tell us that post extreme climate events, for example, there have been studies conducted in Australia after the bushfires or in the US after hurricanes, the cases of domestic violence actually steeply increase. And this happens even in households where there was no violence at all. And and so we need to kind of also put in place measures that protect women from these dynamics post these events and not just kind of, you know, being there when the emergency happens and then kind of, you know, forget about it because it takes time, a long time, for these communities impacted by climate change to recover. And again, there is not just an impact from an economic perspective, because you are you are losing your job, but also in your household, you are no longer safe. So um, it is really interesting, you know, to see how the, all these topics come together. And I think we need to be, you know, people able to see the big picture in order to kind of find the right solutions we can't look at solutions in silos we need to have that end-to-end view in order to be successful in fighting climate change and protecting the communities impacted by it.
0: I think it's just a message that's going to get out more and more as more people talk about it and um, underpin how important it is and how many levels of society it impacts us. Yeah. So you mentioned mentoring earlier in our, our talk, um, you involved in mentor walks, which I, um, I have to say, I was all over your LinkedIn profile. So uh, to my audience, if you haven't uh, connected with Rosanna yet, please go and find her on LinkedIn and connect with her. And it was, will also be a way where you can communicate with her. But I saw your mentor walks and I was very interested in this program.
1: Yeah. So MentorWorks is actually a program that I came across fairly recently as well. So I'm kind of new to it and I was not mentoring. I was actually the mentee, but it has been running in Sydney for the last six to seven years, is running in all major cities in Australia and is running also in Singapore and was recently launched in Canada. And the whole idea is that sometimes for women, it is difficult to find a mentor in, you know, the business context and environment uh, also because we're lacking, you know, uh, female role models. I to have very good mentors uh, from the UK and they happen to be male and they are amazing. But I think there is something different around the way we also define success in our professional and personal journey that resonates more with a woman than with a man. So mentor works is really designed to basically connect um, professionals, any background with mentors. And so you don't know your mentor until you actually walk into the walk. Uh, you are paired based on the topics that want to cover and also based on your kind of background so they try to find a good fit so that you know the conversation is constructive and meaningful and the whole idea is that because you're actually opening up to someone that you don't know and you haven't met before um the environment that they create is kind of safe you meet at the steps of the opera house here in Sydney which is kind of you know amazing amazing view Uh, And you start your day, it's usually on Fridays at 7.10 in the morning, uh, you know, just walking around the Botanic Gardens, again, beautiful setting. And usually you have a walk for one hour and a half, and then you can continue your day going back to work or going back to, you know, whatever you're doing on that Friday. Um, And I found that kind of opening up to someone that didn't know me uh, was actually very powerful because I had to, uh, in a way, put kind of structure around my thoughts right and um, it was really interesting also to talk to someone who had such a different kind of story or was kind of you know working in an industry that was completely different from mine and so I left the walk feeling you know energized feeling driven uh, feeling refreshed as well and I actually signed up um, in September for another walk so you can basically do just one walk you can do it on a regular time um, on a regular basis and uh, basically you know you're likely to be paired uh, with different mentors every time that you walk and talk um and it's great and on top of it you walk and talk also with another person so you're not just opening up to the mentor but also to another mentee uh and it's nice you know the the conversation flows uh you are put at ease and it's a very safe environment to kind of you know share your views and concerns challenges or even just having a kind of you know general conversation around where you're at in your career and just kind of listening to different types of experiences so again if you feel stuck in your career if you feel like you need a sounding board and you also want to connect with other people then you know mental walks is probably one of the best initiatives that you can look at because then you can also spend some time after the walk um talking to the other women who have been kind of walking and talking with other mentors. So it's not just about uh, developing your network and connecting with the mentor and the other person walking with you, but also kind of meeting other people, you know, doing exactly the same thing. And it's nice, you know, it's, it's a very nice uh, and friendly environment as well.
0: Well, that's fabulous. I'm going to actually have a look at that. I'll put the, um, I'll find the link and see what's available because I'm actually based in Melbourne and I'll see what's available here. And to any ladies, I'm assuming it's predominantly geared towards ladies, this particular one? Yeah, it's women. it's it's women. Okay, all right. Now you put together the Weekly Climate and Sustainability Innovation Digest, which I also found on your LinkedIn page, which is a fabulous little resource that you do. Tell us about this.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, in uh, the space of data in the eye, I feel that it's very difficult to say, I'm a specialist, I've arrived, I know everything about it. Because every day, every week, there is a new development. So in my line of work, there is seriously continuous learning that needs to happen. And I kind of, you know, uh, enjoy that part of my work um, as well. So I actually spend quite a bit of time reading research papers, reading articles from trusted sources. And the weekly newsletter for me is a way to have, you know, a weekly commitment um, and also to basically stay on top of the latest developments um, in the space of data and AI. And this year I decided to focus on climate innovation and AI for climate, because as I was mentioning before, I think it's, it's an exciting area uh, and we're not talking about it enough in my kind of you know humble and personal view and so I just kind of thought that pushing out content uh, is actually a way of just kind of sharing awareness about these topics making people uh, energized and excited about it and you know if even one person raise it and then kind of you know on the back of that as more enthusiasm and interest in AI then kind of you know I have achieved (laughs) I have achieved my goals this being said it's a collection of what I uh, feel is the best of content out there so I really need to be grateful to the journalists and you know academics that are actually pushing out this content and are really you know the smart kind of brains and minds behind the newsletter because without these resources it would be impossible to then be able to kind of you know distill it down to a newsletter and a post on LinkedIn.
0: Oh, listen, it's fantastic. And as we touched on just before we started speaking, uh, you know, there's so much information out there today to have a trusted source, i.e. Rosanna, that you've actually gone through it, curated it, read it, and you've actually verified that this is actually true and accurate. And it's not some um, piece of paper that hasn't been checked And you know, because there is a fair bit of that on the internet as well. You do need to check and verify your sources. So please really send me the link to that one. And then I'll also put that in the show notes for our audience if they're interested in um, subscribing. It's actually a post from my profile. So if you are connected
1: with me on LinkedIn or you're following me, then it will come up automatically as we push out um, new content.
0: Perfect. Another reason to um, join Rosanna's LinkedIn pro- um, followers there. Now, Accenture is the lead partner for the women in AI. Um, Obviously, this is hugely exciting, but why do you think this is so important? I think we are in desperate need of good root models and
1: inspiring good models in uh, the AI community in general and then in, you know, the women in AI community. And so I was at the first gala, uh, that, you know, at the first kind of awards, um, ceremony. And I kind of just left that night feeling so energized. I left with some contacts and, you know, these contacts then became friends as well, part of my network and beyond, you know, the personal aspect to it. Um, there is also like, a uh, again a continuous learning opportunity there because you listen to the amazing work that these entrepreneurs have done and so you actually appreciate you know how AI can be a game changer in so many different industries and so you actually learn a lot through listening to their journey and what they have been kind of you know achieving. Um, I feel that we're not just celebrating women you know I don't like the rhetoric around women being victims and kind of you know creating like a small community where we celebrate ourselves. I think these people they are people they are amazing they're entrepreneurs they're innovators Um, they are leaders with the right mindset with the right courage to achieve what they want to achieve and also to make an impact you know it's often the ideas that are Put forward and then kind of are shortlisted are applications of a high that are not just kind of you know experimented in the business context but actually have a benefit sorry they have an impact on the broader community in a positive way so it is truly inspiring and and it's a great event so i'm a big fan of it i'm a big supporter of it and i'm very excited to also be part of uh, the gala this year so it's great but i think for the community and this um, you know andra might not be kind of you know happy about this but i think the ultimate goal for us is to get to a point where we don't need a women in ai awards we just need you know leaders in ai awards and that means that we would have reached that kind of you know dni and kind of you know um truly diverse and inclusive community in the AI space. So that is my ultimate goal um, as, you know, a professional. uh, And if I can help in that journey, then, you know, more than happy to.
0: Yeah. Zana, I'm mindful of your time and you've got a little baby that you uh, are um, looking after. Any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with? Yeah, I think,
1: you know, to me, there are three Things that probably I would like to share. So, the first one is never stop learning. You know, uh, we live in a world where we have to learn new things. And so, if we are actually open to uh, continuous learning, that is actually, you know, beneficial because we are kind of, um, in a way, navigating uncertainty with a positive mindset and actually with curiosity. Uh, The second one would be never stop challenging the status quo. You know, in my world, world I challenge myself I the status quo (laughs) because I can be a little bit rigid sometimes in actually changing my career path so don't be afraid of actually presenting new ideas thinking differently about the journey that you want to be on or kind of you know just make new experiences because that is your life and you know we need to make the most out of the time that we're spending at work as well so just kind of don't kind of be afraid of challenge and asking, you know, um, challenging questions. And then the third one would be to be brave, right? To be brave with your life and to be brave with your career. So just navigate change, make the most out of it, um, and you will be fine.
0: Thank you so much. Um, You've inspired me. I was, while you're talking, I'm thinking of a couple of things that I was sort of a little bit on the fence about and I will be brave and I'll be doing my stuff. So thank you very much for your insights and your time.
1: Pleasure. Thank you so much, Nikki.
0: To our audience, I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as uh, I have and Rosanna has. Rosanna, just in closing, just besides LinkedIn, is there anywhere else that they can reach you?
1: Yeah, usually it's LinkedIn. I'm very kind of responsive. So feel free to message me, to add me. You know, I'm happy to connect with people. So uh, it's probably the easiest way to connect with me.
0: Fabulous. Thank you so much. You have the invitation there. My audience, please do reach out and ask questions. She would love to hear from you. I hope you're well, wherever you are in the world and um, have a great day. And I look forward to your company again next week.